Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs and where we push the limits of our understanding. We are your hosts, Joe Landry and Lori Olford, and we want to start our show with a correction of an error from last week's episode where we inadvertently failed to mention that Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins are the authors of Left Behind, not Hal Lindsey. So we sincerely apologize for that and want to set the record straight. Uh, sorry about the mistake. Anyway, we press on with the topic for today, which is dragons. Those pesky dragons who devastate medieval villages and give challenge to the noble knights of yore. Yes, we're going to analyze some of the literary references and compare them to some other ancient descriptions of aerial phenomena and see if they correlate to possibly being misunderstood alien technology. Lori, are you afraid of dragons? You know, I actually do think they're kind of scary, uh, but my daughter, she thinks they're adorable. Uh, no, I'm not afraid of dragons. <laughs> I guess if they were alive and real, then yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, and then you'll just see one and, and just it just drop from a heart attack, and then it'll devour you. <laughs> <laughs> True that. Uh, wait, your daughter believes those ferocious uh, fire-breeding beasts are adorable? Well, yeah, she's grown up now. She's a college student in her 20s. But when she was a little girl, she absolutely loved the dragon from the movie Shrek. Uh, just, just loved it. Uh, she would pretend to be the dragon. I think in the movie it was just named Dragon. And I remember she had these you know, costume dragon wings that she would always wear when she would play outside. And she just thought the dragon from Shrek was the best thing ever when she was like three or four years old. Uh, yeah, that's cute. Uh, my kids all loved uh, How to Tame Your Dragon. Remember that movie? Yeah. Um, we even nicknamed our black cat Toothless <laughs> because he looked like that little dragon. <laughs> now that is cute. Uh, but when I think of dragons, I think of Dragon Slayer, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Reign of Fire, Sinbad the Sailor, uh, the Star Wars Cret Dragon, you know, scarier ones. And, and dragon stories are found in the myths and the literature of nearly every culture on Earth. Well, my all-time favorite movie about dragons is uh, Reign of Fire with Christian Bale and Matthew McConaughey. If you remember that movie, mm-hmm. it's got yeah, it's got the uh, the fire-breathing dragon that was awakened from its ancient slumber to destroy human civilization. One of my favorite memories was watching this movie, cuddled up on the love seat with my wife, and we were so immersed in that movie and enjoyed every minute of it. The story was great, in my opinion, because I never thought of an end-of-the-world scenario like that. Yeah, I, you know, destroyed by, by dragons. Right. But uh, yeah, you, like you said, um, just about every culture has them. Um, even the, the Bible has some references to dragons, such as in Psalms 18, 7 to 14. And I'll read what it says there. I just pay close attention to what it's actually saying. Uh, the earth trembled and quaked and the found, foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. 
So the psalmist is actually talking about the overwhelming impression God slash Yahweh makes upon him. But he seems to be describing also a kind of terrible beast. Now, if we scrutinize this from a modern day perspective, we can see how it can be interpreted as something mechanical, even though it's described as a creature, especially in verse eight, with a consuming fire coming from his mouth. However, in Ezekiel, as we talked about way back in one of the episodes, um, the Lord is said to have descended from the sky up on a mount along with cherubim that had wheels and wings and could fly fast and was loud. So this is reminiscent of the Psalms with God parting this dark sky with a cherubim with a canopy surrounding him, that would be class, a glass dome. Uh, he even blast the enemy with lightning bolts from his cherubim. So you can easily picture here something that would look very high tech and sci-fi, especially if, if we were to replace the words nostrils, mouth, feet, and cherubim with something like rocket thrusters, landing gear, and weapons armament, like the arrows could be rockets and missiles. Yeah, it, it definitely imparts a mental picture of something uh, like a movie scene. But like many visions and images that come from the ancient religious writers, we know there can be a lot of things that get mistranslated. Uh, last week, we talked about how the visions of the end times could be alluding to sightings of alien beings and their highly advanced spacecraft, weapons, and communication systems. And not only that, but how these images were portrayed in an encoded kind of language that the writers used to describe such occurrences at that time in a way that evoked deeply seated thoughts and emotions. The iteration of powerful beasts like dragons could very well be part of that same style of apocalyptic literature and certainly have a significance in terms of being psychic symbols that reveal some form of archetypes within our minds. We read about something in the Bible called Leviathan. It's really not known exactly what Leviathan is supposed to be in a literal sense. Some suggest that it is a dinosaur. Most think that it is referencing a crocodile, a whale, a giant squid, or any number of animals uh, that could have been considered or at least imagined as being a sea monster, like, like the Kraken or the Hydra or the, the Scylla and Charybdis from Homer's Odyssey. Leviathan is also thought of as being a metaphor of a powerful enemy. Uh, we find this in Isaiah 27, 1, with the prophet saying that Leviathan, a piercing and crooked serpent, shall be slayed along with the dragon. He's talking about Babylon. Uh, some writers have used Leviathan as a literary device in this way uh, to convey an allegorical meaning to political states of affairs, most notably Thomas Hobbes' treaty, uh, treaty in, in 1651, titled by that name, Leviathan. Mm. Yeah, there's also a creature called a behemoth found in Job 40 and 15, where it says God made it to eat grass along with the ox. So many believe the reference is to a hippopotamus or an elephant. Job mentions a good bit about Leviathan, but the book of Enoch goes into saying Leviathan was a female monster living in the watery abyss. If you recall from our episode a couple months ago, when we talked about the great flood, that the Hebrew scribes went off of uh, an earth model where there is an abyss that is far under the ground and that it connects to all of the oceans. And this is also what they believe was source for the so-called fountains that brought up water 
upon the land and was one of the factors that contributed to the deluge, as we find in Genesis uh, chapter 7. Yeah, and Enoch uh, also says that Behemoth was a male monster living in a desert called Dwedan. Um, We don't know where that is. The text only says it's somewhere east of Eden. And it was also said to be a bird or, or griffin, a monster of the air called Ziz. Uh, we find a good bit of comparative mythology here, as there is parallel to the Ugaritic account of Baal and Lotan, uh, and the Hindu Vedic of Indra and Vritra, and a Nordic myth of Thor and Jormungandr, and of course the Babylonian tradition of Marduk and Tiamat, from which we explained a while back in and one of our episodes, uh, the one about alien gods, is that of a, is a personified narration of cosmic events that put the Earth, Moon, and asteroid belt into their respective celestial positions. So there are some striking similarities in the meaning of these mythic-type creatures and the power they are said to possess. Now, Judaic commentary, like the Midrash, uh, talk about Leviathan as being a dragon of the deep, that is the abyss, and will come forth in the end of days. Uh, but the Zohar, on the other hand, uh, talks about Leviathan as being something that more that brings about enlightenment. Uh, but there are also places where it takes on descriptions resembling creatures from pagan war. Um, in Psalms 74, 14, uh, Leviathan has several heads, just like the Greek Hydra and the Sumerian seven-headed serpent. So we have a good bit of interchangeability here with dragons, serpents, and leviathan. It seems that uh, reptiles of all kinds, big and small, help provide a constituent for mythology and imaginative lore. Yes, and there definitely is more written in the book of Job that actually gives some pretty vivid details about the strength and fearsomeness of both the behemoth and the leviathan. In chapters 40, verses 16 through 19, and chapter 41 as well, God challenges Job to dare say anything is more awesome and powerful than the Almighty. And he illustrates his glory by saying that he is even greater than the behemoth um, that he had created. Even though it has a tail that sways like a cedar with close-knit sinews in his thighs and has bones that are tubes of bronze and has limbs like rods of iron. But God says he can trap him and pierce his nose. And in chapter 41, verses 1 and 2, God continues this diatribe with Job by saying that he can pull Leviathan with a fishhook and tie it down his tongue with a rope, despite its its, uh, ferocity. The the rest of the... the, Did you say something, Joe? No, no. You, you... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so the rest of chapter 41 goes on with depicting Leviathan as an incredibly terrifying beast, saying, Who can strip off its outer coat? Its mouth is ringed with fearsome teeth. Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its its breath sets coals ablaze uh, and flames start from its mouth. He also says that Leviathan can break iron and bronze like straw and rotten wood. 
and can make the depths turn like a boiling cadron. Of course, the point that God is making is that as massive and astounding are the behemoth and the Leviathan, they are nothing compared to the Lord Almighty. A little bit of bragging going on there. <laughs> yeah. So the, the notion of dragons may very well have been based on a, a rational myth concept by which animals like snakes and lizards were a descriptive element for communicating some kind of dreadful sight or spectacle. Uh, they convey a schema in the mind that evokes poignant imagery in the way of experiential memory, even if it is on an unconscious level. People fear dragons and hold them in awe as being something not of the human world. Uh, just consider how the Bible portrays them. They have the power to bring about apocalyptic events. They have the power to bring about the end of the world. In the book of Revelation, we have the beast with seven heads, like, like a hydra, and also one uh, whose tail sweeps away a third of the stars in the heavens. And we can sort of observe this scriptural notion, as many of us have, uh, by looking up in the sky at the constellation Draco, which seems to look like there is a tail that is about to swish across a portion of the celestial sphere. So here, dragons are synonymous with calamity. And there is an apocryphal book of the Bible or a deuterocanical book of the Bible, if you're Catholic or Orthodox, and it's called Bell and the Dragon. It involves the prophet Daniel who kills the dragon that is revered by the Babylonians and Persians. In this story, he kills it by feeding it a mixture of tar, fat, and hair, kind of nasty concoction, which made its stomach burst open. And thus, Daniel shows the king that the dragon isn't something deserving of his worship. Not much else is said about it, like about its size, uh, only that it was a great dragon. Again, it leaves you wondering how something like a reptile imparted this impression of power and awe. It could be because people back then related reptiles to something else that made them form uh, this kind of association. And now such a reptilian deity is also found in the mythology of the Maya, the Aztecs and the Toltecs. In Teotihuacan and uh, Tictochitlan, we have a creature that is called a feathered or winged serpent. Uh, It was worshipped by these peoples as a god named Quetzalcoatl. And we talked about him a couple of episodes back as being uh, syncretistic with other gods over in, in the Middle East. And like those gods, he is represented by what Sigmund Freud would call a totem, uh, an animal or object that the ancients believed embodied the abstract quality of the god. Uh, in the case of Quetzalcoatl, it is something that seems like a dragon, a flying snake with a plume of feathers or something. Yeah, and you know, the, the cultural typology of the snake has all kinds of things uh, to it, such as wisdom, trickery, healing, fortune, and the underworld. Some cultures like the Hopi Indian and the Aborigines of Australia tell of a rainbow snake who they believe actually created life on earth. Uh, This is also found in the Egyptian tradition in which the sun is believed to have come from a coiled serpent. It is also very prominent in Hinduism. And of course, the snake is also very significant in the Christian faith. We often see that the dragon is correlated with the snake. Therefore, the essence of the snake would then be transferred to that of the essence of the dragon. Correct. So you commented about the Midrash depicting Leviathan as the dragon of the deep, the abyss that will come forth in the end of days. 
But could a dragon hibernate deep somewhere within the earth, um, like in Reign of Fire, inactive and waiting to be awakened to wreak havoc on the population? As of right now, I would say no. However, dragons are mentioned quite a bit in our religions and ancient texts. The question is, what made our ancestors write about them in such detail? Now, there are stories about European dragons, African dragons, Asian dragons, North and South American dragons. One story that got my attention was that of St. George and the dragon, dating to around the 10th or 11th century, based off of George of Lydia, a Roman soldier who was venerated as a military saint. By the Middle Ages, his influence became well set in the tale of him slaying a terrible dragon that was demanding human sacrifices. Uh, it lived in either the ground or a lake, and St. George goes to the town and rides it, as, uh, rides the dragon off by be hitting it with his sword. Um, how true was this story? Well, I, I would say almost all of it is total myth, but as with many myths, it could be an allegory that is given in reference to some actual event of which details are not yet known. Um, it could also be a sort of parable meant to impart a certain moral message. So if the details of the actual event, whatever it may have been, are completely ambiguous, then you have to ask, what kind of circumstances could there have been by which the storytellers would say there was a dragon killing people? What really was this dragon? Was it a form of some kind of weapon? Uh, whatever it was, it certainly is said to have been capable of immense destruction. Yeah, you know, there is a story very similar to that of St. George and the Dragon. Uh, it too became part of the Western tradition by the 11th century. It involves Sir Lancelot and the Worm of Corbin. Uh, it is part of the Arthurian uh, legend and originated in France and England and uh, around the 6th century, unlike uh, the St. George tale that came from Cappadocia. But the theme is basically the same, and that is a dragon is wreaking havoc on a nearby people. And this would make sense to, the, to those who conceived such an idea in their imaginations of something like a dinosaur being in the midst of their village. After all, we saw what happened in the Jurassic Park movies, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Um, okay, so the word dragon is mentioned over 21 times in the King James Version of the Bible. The problem is that the word dinosaur did not exist when the Bible was first translated into English. The dragons were described as large reptiles by scientific thinkers of the time, and I'm sure that people came across some dinosaur bones in the ground even back then. So imagine a lone peasant or a farmer uncovering the skull of a T-Rex as he was walking along, tripping over a portion of the remains protruding out of the dirt. Uh, even if all he saw was a single tooth or a few bones of a large claw, um, that would make him think in his ancient or medieval mind that he stumbled upon the remains of a, of a dead monster. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, now we explained before that mythologies may be based on true events from the distant past. Uh, the ancients may have been passing along oral tradition, telling what uh, at one time were real occurrences and doing so through literal comparisons with some form of beast that looked like our versions of dragons today. Then again, dragons may be misunderstood uh, ancient technology from another world. Example may be found in the verses of Psalms where Yahweh is said to be descending from the heavens after mounting a cherubim and parting the clouds as he descends, which is what I read earlier. Uh, 
Now, it says that he soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advance with hailstones and bolts of lightning. Interestingly, it says that Yahweh mounted this cherubim, making the reader think of it as something like a horse. Now, in the first chapter of Ezekiel, cherubim are described as having four wings, glass domes, makes a loud noise, and lands on wheels. This is something technological being described here, something mechanical and machine-like, by an ancient person who does not have the lexicon to describe it in the way we would today. That's why a griffin is said to have the body of a lion and the head of an eagle, because it resembles something not natural, not biological, but instead something automated, robotic even. So these descriptions may very well be of what we today would call an airplane that shoots up missiles and gunfire and parts the sky by breaking the sound barrier. Quetzalcoatl uh, being said to look like a feathered serpent doesn't mean that he was an actual flying snake. This is a depiction of the Mayan king Takao on stone carvings um, uh, in Teotihuacan, manipulating controls, what it looks like, inside of what appears to be a, a rocket ship with a serpent or snake wrapped around it. And this uh, seems to be him mimicking his god Quetzalcoatl. This again may have been misconstrued and misinterpreted as a flying serpent or a flying dragon. So. Uh, it would be the same in the case of Yahweh when said when he is said to be traveling inside of a flying cherubim that looks like a jet aircraft of some sort. Perhaps these extraterrestrial beings had designs on their flying craft, much like how uh, the Air Force and Navy does by painting a snarling tiger or a shark on the front of the fighter jets. So uh, I, I do not believe that the ancient alien astronauts were real dragons. Uh, not if we are to go along with the hypothesis that they had a part in the genetic hybridization of our species and that we are in their image and likeness, just as is said in the Bible. Last time I checked, I, I don't think I'm part dragon. Uh, you don't think that they have Scottish accents and talk like Sean Connery? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, well, uh, I guess if they were from Scotland, then they would, right? Yeah, so the dragon whore Mungander from the Nordic legends, I guess he would have a Swedish accent, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yep. Uh, anyway, some writers such as Henry Crane believe that the Anunnaki gods were indeed reptilians. A lot of people believe that. And were also known as Saurians or Draconians, and, and that they may have a bloodline on Earth by which they may still rule us through governmental control. Even in 1888, the cultists Elena Blavatsky referred to dragon men in her book called The Secret Doctrine. And of course, we can see the influence of dragon lore, even in modern day metaphor and allegory, uh, such as uh, how rising Asian stock markets at the Pacific Rim are called dragon economies, and how dragons are a big part of storytelling in dozens of movies, games, and literature. Now, we all know what comes to mind when we hear the word dragon and the description in chapter 41 of the book of Job. It's a did on with a mouth ringed with fearsome teeth a back with rows of tight shields, a snorting of light flashes of light, uh, eyes like uh, sun rays, flames, sparks and smoke are exuding from a fiery breath. Right. The uh, descriptions of dragons are often given in profound and dramatic style. 
And you have to wonder what it was that people may have actually been witnessing. Uh, poets are lavish in how they write about the appearance of a dragon and how a brave warrior faces it. Fairy tales are loaded with this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. But consider how someone could tell the story of, say, uh, what, what they witnessed uh, at the time of the launch of the space shuttle. Uh, for those who have been to Cape Canaveral to watch that, you know it is something that can be like a sensory overload with the bright flash of light, the roar of the booster engines preceded by a sonic boom, and then the fire and the smoke and the blaze that uh, rapidly ascends into the sky at an unthinkable rate. It definitely leaves a lasting impression upon you, and it may be something you never forget. So if the ancients saw something like a rocket ship, the theory of symbolic behavior would suggest that they would communicate the experience, both emotional and cognitive, uh, through the comparison of concepts with objects, in this case, animals being the objects. And this is where we see mental schema converging to form a sort of paradigm of comparison. And that is people use words they do understand to explain phenomena that they do not understand. That is very true. That's why in the Bible, with uh, Yahweh descending on a mountaintop, uh, his power and glory, his eminence, it's just uh, that's that's what was struck in, in the minds of these people back then. And they had no other way to this to uh, explain it. I mean, God descending on a mountaintop, smoke and fire. That mm-hmm. doesn't sound like a spiritual being to me, right? <laughs> well, it sounds like a rocket. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it trembles the, the mountain as it descends and everything. So, yeah. And then God's standing at the top of a mount uh, of, a, of a paved platform. Uh, yeah, that's it, it, a being inside of a ship. Now, could it also be uh, possible that the Anunnaki brought actual dragon-like beings here from another planet? Um, they may even have been of a similar DNA to that of the Anunnaki. I mean, who knows? Uh, the Book of Revelation mentions the great dragon who is the serpent of old. So here it is referencing um, or referring to the serpent in the Garden of Eden as being a dragon. Who knows? Maybe they were used to assist the Anunnaki in wiping out the giant flesh-consuming Nephilim that are portrayed in Genesis and Enoch. Or maybe it was that those very giants mounted and flew on dragons, much like in the way we've, we've seen a vision in folklore. Point is, they are very well described and their legacy has survived even to this day. Yeah, and you, you brought up the fact that uh Different kinds of dragons are found in the myths of different places, uh, with them being uniquely depicted in every culture. Uh, we see that there are air dragons, which are huge, and breathe fire, and fly around by flapping those big, scary-looking wings. Uh, these are the ones with which we are most familiar in the West, and are characteristic of European legends and myths, as well as in Mesoamerica. However, in the East, it is more typical to have the depiction of water dragons, the ones that appear more like terrifying sea serpents and and sea monsters. Uh, They are also more like what African and Asian myths portray in their traditions. Also like those in Oceania, uh, that being like Polynesia, Micronesia, and Melanesia. Uh, These aren't hard, fast rules, of course. They're just obvious anthropological tendencies of variations to form among different uh, different peoples like uh, all the other variations we observe across different societies and different cultures. The point is that the stories of dragons are found everywhere. Now in China, there is the ever important legend of the dragon emperor, Chen Si Huang, 
um, from around 247 BC. He is credited uh, with unifying all of the warring Chinese states under the Qing dynasty and is said to have had divine wisdom and power and also that he was of the bloodline of a dragon. To the ancient Chinese, dragons were thought to be godly manifestations, just like how in Hinduism, uh, creatures presented as a combination of different animals are believed to be representations of deities. So here we have what is like an incarnation of a god, much like how in Christianity, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit through a miracle. Uh, Ching Shi Wang is also thought to have been conceived in the same way. The mental picture of a dragon conveys something that is from beyond this world. Somewhere along the line, people got caught up with explaining ancient technological aerial phenomena as strange-looking and powerful gods and demigods. And the strange-looking aspects of those gods and demigods were construed from the impressions people got when coming across really just those creepy, crawly, and freaky reptiles. Psychologists would call this a schematic analogy. Yeah, sounds a lot like the Anunnaki bloodline with the dragon connection there. Mm-hmm. So yes, the uh, the Bible mentions Leviathan quite a bit, and it seems to be calling it a monster of the deep. So some scriptures have it hiding in the marshes and reeds, and also have it with rows of teeth and a mouth that can be tied with a rope, whereby some would infer it. Uh, is nothing more than a crocodile in, in the Nile River. But as you commented earlier, Yahweh breaks to Job that he can subdue Leviathan, implying no one else can. Also, the book of Psalms has Yahweh mounting it in the sky, even though it's said to be a water beast. The problem is with the mistranslation of the word for dragon. A lot of scriptures in the New International Version say jackals or hyenas instead of dragons. So there are several animals that may have been given the label of dragon. But if we go back to Job 41, we see it has fire coming from its mouth and smoke from its nostrils. This is not like the description of a jackal or a hino or even a crocodile. Sometimes I wonder if back during biblical times, life was like what we see in fantasy art today. Like, was Yahweh actually riding some animal that was merely called a dragon? You know, much like how we see in the movie Avatar and How to Train Your Dragon. Um, It could be that these dragons were extraterrestrial creatures brought here by the gods. So they just may well have really existed. But then they later died off, of course. Um, However, I think the more logical explanation would be they are misunderstood ancient flight technology. Right. And you you say uh, you can say that these creatures could be just about anything on Earth, uh, somewhat equine. or like a hippopotamus or an elephant, but it's that fire breathing part that it's not so easily resolved and no animal that we know of can do that. So the imagery had to have been either completely fabricated or misconstrued from something else. And if it was completely fabricated, you you have to wonder why it was done so in this manner. So it's here that we get into the archetypes that are the foundation of mythology and these, which these patterns of symbols emerge from the unconsciousness. Uh, These images were created based on the affective uh, impressions made upon the collective psyche through the the senses. Um, To put it more succinctly, this is why we have campfire stories, Uh, symbols used in the telling of epic poems and the passing of tradition engages that, that psychic drive, that innate drive we have as individuals 
to come together and coalesce together as a group. People have a need to communicate stories, uh, not only through literary devices, but also through songs, uh, as they too, with the use of music, is a way that people come together to share any experience of a tale being told. Sure do. And uh, people can be quite creative in the vivid use of imagine, uh, of imagery to tell stories of, of adventures, catastrophes, uh, magic, and heroes. We have in the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh, a fire-breathing beast named Humbaba, who was put in the cedar forest by the god Utushamish to protect it. It is full of suspense with, with uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu defeating Humbaba on their journey to the mountains. And here we have yet uh, another connection to Yahweh, which we covered in our episode about extraterrestrial law. The Yahweh was quite possibly Yutu Shamas because we see in the Psalms how Yahweh was also associated with the cedar forest. Uh, maybe this beast called Humbaba um, was what Yahweh is said to have ridden, a cherubim, or possibly a, a flying craft. Maybe. Um, another compelling reason to associate dragons with the ancient astronauts is something we find in Norse mythology. It tells of three dragons, two of which uh, in battle bring about Ragnarok, which is uh, sort of what you might call a Viking Armageddon. It's also that movie. It was a good movie that came out. It was three years ago about Thor and Rang- Ragnarok. <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah, I like that one. It had some good humor in it, too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Uh, what's interesting, though, is that they are supposed to protect gold from down in the abyss. Um, it reminds me of Smog, right? Isn't that the name of that dragon in the, the Lord of the Rings or right. the Hobbit series? Uh-huh. Desolation of Smog. Yeah, he's protecting all that gold. Um, but, but why gold? The significance of gold keeps coming up. Like, could dragons have had a connection with the Anunnaki gods? Uh, one of the Nordic dragons is said to have wrapped in itself around the tree of life as well. So here, now we have a biblical con- connotation as well. So either way you look at it, dragons continue to be an unsolved mystery in the hearts and minds of, of, of people, even today. Yeah, indeed. And they intrigue us and fascinate us on a very primal level. It's, it's something that's in our genes. Uh, like anything else that terrifies us, we're, we're spellbound by it. And that could be because within our minds... We have a deep connection with it, um, just like the idea of alien beings. The idea of dragons evokes a discrete response from us because it's meaningful to us on a very fundamental level. And with that, we conclude the show. Uh, that is all the time we have. And we thank all of you for listening in, and we hope you enjoyed today's topic. Uh, Lori and I have received Facebook feedback from some of you, and we do appreciate it. Some of it is positive. Some of it, well... Uh, <laughs> A little less so, <laughs> but uh, we, we take it all in stride and we are always open to any comments or suggestions and yes, uh, even mockery, right? <laughs> yeah, even mockery. Uh, <laughs> we know some people don't like our podcast or agree with us and that is fine. Uh, Joe and I understand that. We only hope that people are not merely seeing the word alien and assuming that there cannot be an intelligent conversation about it. Because there can be. Um, We definitely do bring religion into the mix. And that's because of our extensive backgrounds in it. We were raised in it. We grew up in it. Um, We studied in it. Um, And we hope people are willing to open their minds to ponder all of the things that they were ever taught, like we did. Um, Not only about religion, but also about science and history, as well as about about themselves. 
Uh, we also don't claim to have all the answers. So don't just listen to us. Um, all of you should research these subjects on your own. And like Joe says, push the limits of your understanding. And it is our hope that people from all walks of life will enjoy this podcast and take something away from it. Yeah, that's right. Like we said before, we, we do have thick skin. I, I know I've received my fair share of criticism and have been called plenty of bad names before. So that's not a first. Ah, but have you ever been called worse than a Harry Potter aficionado? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, for certain I have. But uh, Harry Potter aficionado, that is pretty bad, I have to say. I, I have never been called that. Uh, oh. So for next episode, we're going to get into the possibility of alien spaceports having been set up on Earth from the ancient past uh, in places like Egypt, Phoenicia, and Mesoamerica. And we'll examine what archaeology and cultural myths can tell us about that. Yeah, there are dozens of locations where there are structures that are so large that you have to wonder what purpose they really served uh, the ancients. And they are so perfectly designed and constructed that it defies any sensible explanation as to how such feats were accomplished. Of course, I'm, I'm talking about Giza, Baalbek, Sapar, Teotihuacan, and, and many others, man-made places where it is believed that the gods ascended and descended between heaven and earth. It, it's going to uh, be a really interesting show. You may want to tune in for that one. Yeah, for sure. So could all or any of these have been alien spaceports? I don't know, but we're going to discuss the whole topic in depth, just like we always do. So until next time, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. So long, folks. Bye, everyone. Thanks again for joining us.